As you've been hearing in the news, a lot of cancelled ferry sailings between the mainland and Bowen Island on the weekend. Joining us to talk about that and how that seems to have kind of reignited the debate over a planned park and campground on the island is Andrew Leonard, who is the mayor of Bowen Island. Thank you so much for taking some time today. Thank you so much for having me here. I want to start with the ferries because I think it surprised a lot of people when news got out. We saw that all of the sailings between Horseshoe Bay and Bowen Island were cancelled on Saturday afternoon. What happened there? Um, Yeah, I'd like to say that it's surprising. However, it's starting to feel less and less surprising as this is, I think, the fifth event or the third or fourth event that we've had like this in the last number of months. And I just, I find it so disappointing that on a weekend, when DC Ferries is sending out press releases that boast about 100 additional sailings between the mainland and Vancouver Island, that it's Bowen Island and um, our much smaller boat, which has to sta- shoulder their staff shortages. So we had residents trapped on the mainland and we had hundreds of tourists trapped on the island and uh, we were scrambling to deal with this um, overnight influx on an island of 4,200 people with no hotels. We had people sleeping in their cars, people uh, um, had to leave vehicles behind, people were confused. And, you know, I have yet to uh, uh, hear anything from BC Ferries, let alone an apology. Uh, We certainly reached out to BC Ferries and were told, keep your eye on Twitter and the latest information will be there. That was specifically talking about the other problems they're having is with their website, the phones and the app today. So uh, some Mm -hmm. other issues there as well. Uh, Like you said, though, this isn't the first time that this has happened, but the scope of this, that all of the sailings were cancelled that afternoon. Has it has it been that much of that big of a cancellation before? Yes, absolutely. So previously, just a couple of months ago, uh, in the winter, when it was snowing, we had a half day of ferries canceled on a Friday afternoon, which left all of our high school kids, which go to the mainland to attend high school, they were trapped on the mainland. We had contractors and um, uh, workers who needed to get off the island. Uh, and on a Friday afternoon, all of the ferries in that second shift from the afternoon right through until the evening uh, were canceled, and we were in the exact same scramble. And some of the commitments that BC Ferries made to us um, as a result of that, in, in terms of communication and pieces that they were that they were going to take care of, uh, were not met. So, you know, we are incredibly frustrated on the island, we're see, being seen increasingly as a spot for tourism within the region, and we're not seeing. Um, some of these fundamental infrastructure pieces, which David Eby, our premier, calls the ferry network, the um, the marine highway uh, uh, system, uh, you know, this system to Bowen Island is starting to feel unreliable, starting to feel like it's crumbling, and it needs some investment um, almost immediately to ensure reliability of service for uh, residents who are so close to the mainland that it feels like uh, public transit for us. Have you gotten any answers from BC Ferries about why staffing shortages keep affecting this particular route? Uh, we have not. So again, you know, I will point to their their very rosy media releases, which which touted extra service between uh, the mainland and Vancouver Island, and yet their smallest boat that's going to Bowen Island. Um, and is disproportionately affected by tourism, given the size of our infrastructure here. Uh, you know, we didn't, we haven't gotten any help. And, and uh, you know, resolving, <laughs> resolving things through Twitter um, uh, just isn't enough for us. So, so I'll, I'll have some very hard questions for BC Ferries in the coming weeks. This is also raising a lot of questions about the planned campsite and new park on Bowen Island. Where is where are things as far as a final decision and the moving ahead with that project? 
Uh, yeah, very challenging uh, uh, project, as I'm as I'm sure that you've heard uh, uh, in the media. There's been a lot um, going on about it. Much of the the deal. So, just as a bit of history, much of the this deal for the park and for the rezoning was done um, in closed meetings by our previous council, and and I'll add with unanimous support by that council. Um, which, because it was closed, I released the minutes of at the start of this term, and it's it's you know created a very difficult process to steward. We've got a passionate community. They didn't know any of the details of the project um, that will significantly increase visitation to the island, um, which has challenges given the ferry issues that we've seen. So uh, the process right now, we did first reading uh, a month ago. Uh, there's still a long way to go. There's two more readings. So the bylaw process, as it unfolds, there'll be two more readings, a public hearing, um, and then uh, another reading for adoption on Bowen Island's end. And I know that Metro Vancouver still has two full phases of engagement and uh, and design to do. And there's studies that we've requested from them. There's information that we've requested from them that our committees have requested from them. Um, so there's there's a, a, a long road ahead um, until all the details get sorted out. When you talk about uh, the minutes and the details of this, and uh, and I think many people who have concerns about this project are also talking about that transparency. Why was it, do you think, that, that we have now seen through a freedom of information request that some of the residents of Bowen uh, put together and and put and shared with people it really feels like a former counselor a counselor by the name of David Hawking and the developer they were talking about this in private and working on this deal well before it was even close to becoming public knowledge yeah so and and sorry what's what's the the question there why was why do you think that happened or why was that being done if this is a project that's supposed to benefit everybody and is going to be such a great thing for the region which metro vancouver is touting it as why such secrecy um yeah all i can say is is may and and it's speculation on my part so i can't really speak on the motivations of a of previous council or, or or counselor so there was there was a stewarding or a connection made um, uh, for the land sale uh, by it appears, uh, uh, you know, a f- by former Councillor Hawking, um, as well as the shareholder, and, and they made that connection with Metro Vancouver. Um, however, it was uh, also a long time. So it was well over a year and a half ago where this did come before Council. So in the, in the closed minutes that we released, you would have seen that uh, Metro Vancouver did make a presentation in front of our Council, um, our full Council um, at the time uh, from the previous term was informed. They did give unanimous support on multiple occasions and resolutions to transfer easements and parklands. So, you know, it was both um, former Councillor Hawking, who it appears initiated the deal, but, you know, also it does appear that our previous council did go into this unanimously with um, uh, eyes fully open, but, you know, without the uh, support of the whole community. And this is what we've we've seen and this is what our new council is struggling to deal with as um, you know we immediately knew that this was going to be a hot question issue we immediately took steps for transparency we released everything that we had from closed meetings we have not held um, any closed meetings on this issue and um, we've just faced the music over and over and over again um, from our community as well as you know seeking to uh, you know maintain our relationship with metro vancouver and keep the door open as much as possible for um, ultimately what is 240 acres that is now um, in public hands, uh, but the future of which is uncertain as all the details come out. So there's, there's a piece of process here, which the process that got us here was not good at all. And it was not, and it was very opaque and very challenging to deal with. Um, And 
you know, right now it's really like, well, what does the project look like? Are there merits here? Um, can some of these issues, which maybe appear insurmountable at this point, like transportation and transit and ferries, can those be overcome? Um, and, and what does this mean for Bowen Island residents who see the island increasingly being used by um, tourists who, uh, uh, you know, have absorbed so much growth in terms of residents in the last um, 20 years, and, and, and it's really stressing our infrastructure. Right. And if, and if you look at what happened on Saturday, and of course, nobody wants to see a repeat of all the ferry can- the sailings being cancelled. But like you also said, it wasn't a huge surprise. This has been a problem. Even mm. though people, if this project goes ahead and people, uh, there's talk of shuttle buses and people won't be driving, obviously there is going to be much more activity on Bowen Island. Imagine if something like that happened when that campsite and park was up and running. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I do imagine it, and, and I think many of our residents imagine, because our residents, being on Bowen Island is such a unique experience. Living on Bowen Island is such a unique experience. It's absolutely beautiful here. It is gorgeous. We, we you know, love sharing, but, but to put it into context, what happened on the day that the ferries were cancelled, um, you know, myself and another counselor, we were in Facebook groups, you know, looking for accommodation for people, seeing who had free rooms in their house. We had um, uh, people volunteering rooms in our houses for people to stay. We had residents checking on people who were sleeping in their cars. So we can rally around these types of, of emergencies, but when they are foreseeable, and particularly in the context of a, of a park project that could bring up to 500 overnight visitors a night, um, you know, this, these are going to be issues that are foreseeable. And it's not like we can't plan for them, or it's not like infrastructure can't be built out to deal with it, but we need solid commitments and answers on that um, before any of that happens. So, you know, because if there's ever a situation where folks need to be evacuated from the island, if there's ever a situation where we can't get 500 campers off the island, let alone the people that are coming for weddings and uh, day hikes and coming to play golf um, or coming to use, you know, one of the the 300,000 visitors a year to Crippen Park, I mean, these are all people that when the ferry goes down, it's like a highway has been washed out. And as a result, it's, uh, we have our kind of come from away moment in the community where we've got to um, uh, deal with it. And if it's going to happen on a regular basis, that's not something that we're up for. Right. And Mayor Leonard, I'm curious as well, when you, when you talked about some of the challenges, and is it also challenging in that you're dealing with Metro Vancouver, you're dealing as the mayor with a, a project and a plan that was, uh, the wheels were set rolling uh, long before uh, this this uh, current council was it was elected, but I mean, there's also there's a petition that I believe has more signatures on it than the voter turnout for the last civic election, and these are signatures opposed to this project. Whereas Metro Vancouver is saying, no, no, this is a great project for the entire region. How do you, as the mayor of Bowen Island, reconcile those two things? Um, so I'm not. So I, I believe the petition has has. It doesn't have more than the voter turnout. I think it has more than half of the of the, the voter turnout, um, so sitting at about 1,300 signatures. And to be clear, um, and I don't want to speak for the, the petition or organizers, but there's a diversity of opinions there. There's, there's folks that are in support of um, having a park, but with no camping. There's folks that are against any um, park development out there at all. There's folks that are kind of in the no unless camp. Um, so it's, you know, there's, there's a diversity of uh, diversity of opinions there. Um, I don't believe that after the park project became public, um, 
And, you know, Bowen Island is a very passionate community. It has no problem letting its opinions be heard in uh, uh, detailed, constructive and um, uh, fulsome ways. Uh, and that message was received by the Metro Vancouver Board and its Parks Committee, which I sit on, uh, was received by our new council. Um, so I don't think anybody around the table, whether it's Metro Vancouver or uh, or Bowen Island, is you know thinking that this is this is going to be you know a slam dunk, super easy project. Uh, I think some of the opposition and some of the concerns that our council has raised and our community has raised. Uh, uh, have come to the fore and need to be addressed and um, uh, need to be looked at. And it's, it's, will have slowed down the process uh, significantly. So I don't think anybody right now is looking at the Cape Roger Curtis project, like it is easy, like it is a slam dunk or that there's a, a tremendous, you know, a tremendous regional benefit. And it's worth remembering that Bowen Island is a part of the region. We are a part of Metro Vancouver and we are regional residents. So um, we have just as much a say and just as much a stake in finding um, a constructive, um, win-win scenario forward uh, or, or it's just not going to work um, so that's really that's really where we're at I think there's concern on all sides and, uh, and that needs to be teased out and worked on and mitigated um, and nobody as of yet has any idea what that's going to look like. All right Mayor Leonard I'm sure we'll talk to you about this again but we'll have to leave it there for today thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me and uh, I hope you've enjoyed your long weekend. If you have been outside today, you've probably noticed it is much cooler than it has been the last few days. Uh, The really warm days that we saw last week, a lot of temperature records were broken. So I think a lot of people, even if you like the heat, probably uh, are happy to welcome a bit of cooler temperatures back. However, that mid-May heat has raised some concerns, specifically for teachers in Surrey. Well, in other jurisdictions as well, there's also a school in Vancouver where some of the parents are raising concerns. Uh, that's the Crosstown Elementary School, but also in Surrey, specifically in the portables where there can be little ventilation, there are windows, there certainly is not air conditioning. And now there is a guideline that has been put out by the district, but some teachers are even wondering if that guideline is really all that helpful. Joining the show now to talk a bit more about what is happening in these portables is Jatinder Burr. Jatinder Burr is the president of the Surrey Teacher Association. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. We've talked about the heat and about concerns, not only about the heat, but also about the conditions in the Surrey School District, the number of portables. I understand some more concerns are now being raised about the temperatures that can that can be reached inside, specifically inside those portables. Yes, that is true. Um, we understand that our portables um, some of them are, are quite old, and so the um, air uh, quality is not super great in there. And so when the heat starts to um, hit those portables, there are small windows, doors, and uh, it gets really, really hot and stuffy in those portables. And um, we understand from hearing from our members that um, when it gets really hot like that, um, teachers are not feeling well, and nor are the students' learning conditions really optimal for learning. And I'm I'm guessing that this is, is something that's that's kind of come out now. In that usually we wouldn't be talking about this hard uh, hot weather or weather with this temperature, these types of temperatures, until after the end of the school year. But now that we're seeing this, or we, we've seen this already in May, uh, has it become more of a concern? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we all know that uh, you know our weather has been super. Unpredictable. 
Uh, but when it does get really hot, we don't have proper um, mechanisms in school to keep portables cool. Uh, other than a fan, um, it get, it's going to get really, really hot. And we know that the climate and uh, is changing. And so as schools start to get hotter earlier in the school year, we need to come up with some better systems about how to keep those classrooms cool. Uh, what what is it is it similar in the school itself in that I know that's become another issue in I, I think in New Westminster it was there's a new school that's being built without air conditioning uh, the premier was asked about this and saying that that new schools are going to have air conditioning but what about the current schools themselves in Surrey uh, even with windows and with fans uh, they wouldn't have air conditioning either would they no, no, they don't. And so what they've told our um, teachers is that in, in order to keep your rooms cle- um, cool, they've said do all the things, like turn off the lights, keep the blinds down and all that kind of stuff. But we have a lot of older buildings, uh, Jill, that require, you know, sort of upgrades in HVAC. So in like from what I understood that uh, the premier said was it's up to school districts to be able to do this. But in a district like Surrey, where we can't even keep up with the infrastructure of we're getting more and more portables, 400 portables to start next year. Um, we're looking to build new schools. Uh, when are they going to do the, uh, you know, retrofits for air conditioners or HVACs to be able to keep the rest of those schools cool given that the climate will just get hotter and hotter. Right. I saw a table as well, a chart that shows the different temperatures and what the district is suggesting should the temperatures inside, I think it was specific to portables, but but schools as well, but what should be considered if the temperature gets uh, to to very high levels. I thought it was, it seems like that even the um, the, the, the suggestions there, say if it's 37 degrees, that the, the suggestion is if you're doing light work, take at least 30 minutes of rest within an hour of work, take 45 minutes of rest within every hour of work. That doesn't, A, it doesn't seem like it's going to really combat working in a 37 degree temperature. And how do you get a, a day of work done doing that? <laughs> That's a great question, actually, and I would love for the district to be able to answer something like that. So when you put a framework like that um, in a table, it doesn't help the teachers or the students that are in those classrooms. You can do light work. So light work could be a reference to like reading. But when it's so hot, it's hard to be able to actually concentrate. You know, you're not, sometimes the heat makes our kids and adults nauseous, right? And so that concentration is really lost. At 39 degrees, really, what can be achieved? And is it safe to be in a building like that where there is no cooling mechanism? Um, I think that the framework, and, you know, my understanding is that the district had said that they rely on the um, public health officers to, you know, sort of let us know when the school should be open or not. And so how does that information get trickled down to the schools and to the staff? That's my wondering as well. And and even looking at the chart too, like going to 39 degrees, it says that all work to be conducted as a rest effort. What does that actually mean? Yeah, so it's my understanding when they're referring to rest, that means that you're not getting uh, students to do anything sort of active. So you're going to refrain from doing any kind of, let's say, um, physical education, or even if in a classroom where 
uh, they're going there. They're, so this one, <laughs> this was a bit tricky because my understanding is when they're referring to the rest, they're referring to doing work that's like sit down work that doesn't require a whole lot of physical exertion. Right, which makes a lot of sense. But still, like you said, if we're seeing people that are feeling nauseous, exhausted, probably headaches with temperatures lower than that, I mean, you can imagine being inside a building that's sitting at 39 degrees, that's that's not good for anybody. Yeah, and you know, Jill, I think the reality is that you can't keep anybody indoors for that kind of temperatures. And so I can see teachers relocating outside. But the problem is that we don't have a lot of shaded areas. We don't have a whole lot of refuge, you know, covered areas where we'd be able to um, move the kids outside, you know, where you can take chairs. It changes the um, delivery of instruction as well of what you're doing. And so... It is definitely something we need to be more thoughtful of moving forward. Um, And I'm hoping that, you know, the school district will come up with some really good ideas. But in working in consultation with those folks that are in the school buildings, Right. And and I know 39 degrees is an extreme example, at least I hope it is, that even during the heat dome, we did see hot temperatures and part of the problem with it not cooling down at night and it being so hot. Do you know how hot it got in some of the school, in some of the portables when we saw those really hot temperatures last week? Yeah. So from the folks, the teachers we heard from, they were talking about 30 to 32 uh, a lot of the older portables don't have thermostats, so it's incredibly hard to actually even determine the temperatures within those portables. Uh, and so teachers have been asking us, do we need to take thermostat, like those thermostats into our classrooms to you know, gauge that temperature? We don't have enough information at this point because this is fairly new. But I'm really hoping that the school district will send out communication to our members to let them know, so what are the strategies? What are the protocols? How much heat is too much? And um, I'm hoping that comes out sooner than later. Right. And I know I saw as well that, well, certainly there was so much talk about even getting the air purifiers and that kind of equipment during the pandemic. Are teachers now doing things like bringing in their own fans or or trying to bring in those cooling devices? So I've definitely heard of teachers bringing in their own fans. Um, I I will, I you know, I'd like to know if they have the ability to bring in the portable um air conditioners to put in the windowsills, but I know that, you know, you have to get consent from the school district to be able to do those kinds of things. And so I'm not aware of any one teacher that has that, but I haven't talked to all 7,000 teachers yet either. Right. And that's also a pretty big expense. You're looking at a few hundred dollars at least, aren't you, if you're if you're able to, to set up one of those air conditioners? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's interesting. Hawaii teachers were able to get uh, portable uh, air conditioners in each of their classrooms because it's hot there. And as well with the, the climate change, um, that was the only way to keep those classrooms cool. And so that's my wondering, do we have the ability to bring in portable air conditioners into the classrooms? Because really for kids learning and for teachers to be able to do proper instruction, you know, keeping them cool and um, taste is, is actually beneficial to all. Jatinder will continue uh, to follow uh, and see what happens next in this because certainly Surrey's not the only district dealing with this also. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us to talk more about this today. Thank you for your time, Jill. 
Well, we started the show talking with the mayor of Bowen Island, Andrew Leonard, joined us talking about both the ferry chaos, uh, well, the chaos caused by cancelled ferries on Saturday, as well as the proposed park for that region. And that was that cancellation, I think, that kind of reignited that conversation. Joining me now to talk a little bit more is Michael Kale, who is a former Bowen Island councillor. Thank you so much for taking some time to come on the show today. Uh, hello, Joe. Good afternoon. I wanted to start with the fact that there were all of the ferry cancellations and it sounded rather chaotic on Saturday afternoon. What are your thoughts on the fact that it was apparently a crewing shortage again that cancelled those all of those sailings on late Saturday afternoon? Uh, well, you're exactly right. I mean, that's that's what happened, Jill. It was uh, indeed a crew shortage. But, you know, we're no stranger to this and nor some of the other Gulf Islands. We're no stranger. If you just look back over the last couple of months, uh, cancellations due to crew shortage far outnumber cancellations for technical reasons or any other reasons. We haven't had extreme weather. It's a short trip between us and, and Horseshoe Bay. So, you know, in a way, this is nothing new. It just came to a really a, a serious point uh, this weekend uh, and it drew extra attention to a situation that's been existing for for some long while it also drew some more attention i think to the ongoing debate and the discussions that are taking place about the proposed parks so when it comes to uh, roger curtis point and the idea of the park and specifically i think what people are, are well there's a lot of concerns but there is a lot of concern as well about the amount of camping in that park i mentioned that you're a former councillor with bowen island when did you first learn about this or did this start to to come to the surface that this was even even being discussed? Well, no, uh, this, this was being discussed in 2022. Uh, please remember uh, that this is a direct purchase between Metro Vancouver and the sellers. They didn't need council approval to buy this piece of land. This is, this is a straight buyer-seller acquisition. Uh, Metro Vancouver being the buyer, the sellers being the sellers, and they went ahead and they sort of working on uh, the process of buying this land. So we we were very much a third party to this, uh, and uh, so, but certainly aware that this situation was being discussed in in, in 2022. And at the point at that time, though, when when that private sale was taking place, did you have any any idea or was it made public that the idea was going to be not only to preserve this land and to to keep it, but to also perhaps open it up as a campground, uh, something that would have uh, I, I think the number went up to was it, was it 100 or more campsites, 100, 100 campsites. Well, you raise an extremely Valid point, Jill, and, and probably a very difficult one. What, what one was aware of and what one wasn't aware of is something I have in hand at the moment as an ex-councillor because I have an application in front of the present council to meet with their legal team, to meet with their legal advisors because of information handed to me under the Freedom of Information Act which, which gives me the greatest of concern on this very subject. 
And as I say, I'm hoping to hear tomorrow that I will be able to meet with council's legal legal advisors to see where we're going to take that information. That information, by the way, was widely circulated on Facebook, so it's no secret here on the island. And uh, we'll just simply have to see where that goes. And I'm assuming I'm going to get access to legal counsel here on Bowen Island. Uh, If not, Jill, I think we'll be talking some more in the future. (laughs) Right. And uh, I know the information you're talking about, this was a freedom of information request that was shared uh, quite widely with that group. Uh, That group has allowed me as a member of the media to to be part, to to at least see and to, to look at some of that information. Can you tell us a little bit or even explain what stands out to you as points of concern when you look at uh, the there were a lot of emails that were released from that the information that you saw i i suppose what stands out to me is i'm sitting there as, as a member of council just as the present council is and past councils and future will do and it's not till later on that i realize that on a subject i should be pretty current there are conversations going on that I'm unaware, unaware of. So I think I was searching is, okay, so what do I do now? This information was, was brought to me by very concerned members of this community. So I'm saying, okay, what is the correct thing to do? So I've made application to meet with, uh, with our, our current uh, council's legal advisors, and I hope to get an answer tomorrow that that access has been granted so we can take the proper procedure, go forward, and then it will be their responsibility, having seen, having seen what you've seen and probably everybody on the island has seen, and then they're going to have to take it forward and make their own inquiry. But I, I promise you something, Jill, that that is something which I am going to know about. It's one thing to not to know in the first instance, but I can assure anyone who's listening, that's, that's just not going to happen again. And why the legal counsel? Why, why specifically the legal advisor, or sorry, the legal advisors to the council rather than, say, the current mayor and councillors? Um, well, I wrote to the current mayor and councillors, and I've explained to them in writing what it is I want. I've been asked to actually to explain, which is a little odd, but I've been asked to explain what exactly what it is I want to address with the legal counsel. So they're fully in the picture. They are, I wrote to them first. They, they were my first point of contact, uh, requesting this meeting. So we'll see where it goes, Jill. We're, we really will. The, the ball is firmly in their court at the moment. Right. And for you, what are your concerns with the plan or with the proposal for this park and campsite the way it stands right now? Well, okay. <laughs> all right. This is an interesting one because if you just if we all just stand back for a minute... Just stand back and, 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 and have a look at what we've actually got here. We've got uh, Metro Vancouver have parted with $40 million, and they have bought, they have now actually own 79 hectares or 240 acres of a very beautiful land here on Bowen Island. It happens to be also at the furthest part of Bowen Island. So when you're looking at concerns... Here you've got a, a, a facility which could have 100 campsites. It's going to attract a lot of people. However you slice and dice it, this is going to attract a lot of people. 
first obstacle that's going to come is highly challenged ferry service. I'm not throwing rocks at those excellent ferry people. That Horseshoe Bay terminal is so past repair, it's not true. I have every empathy with the good people working with BC ferries. The, 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 the actual physical terminal is a, is a sad place. So not only challenged access, but you've then got to get these good people right across the island. Now, anyone who knows this island well knows that this is a small, very rural road. And as yet, although started, we don't have separate bike lanes for the majority of it. Cars and bikes all come together. That's, that's pretty unhealthy. But still, we've got to get these people through. And one of the things that will... The, the first group that will talk to you is a, there's a lovely area there called Tunstall Bay at the entrance to the park. They're having their their lo, little their location gutted by an excess of tra, excess of traffic steaming through their homes, turning a, a quiet residential area in, into a highway. So there's a major concern, and of course it goes without saying, doesn't it? The the biggest the biggest concern. Once you've got people across, I don't know how you're going to do that. Once you've got people across, is fire. I, 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 I listening to the news this morning. One of your colleagues was talking about the regional parks being closed in Alberta. It, it goes without saying, I think, that beside our overwhelmed ferry service, we've now got to, we have an excellent volunteer fire service. Trouble is, Jill, we don't have any water to put the fire out. Right. I don't know whether you know. I mean, what are we going to do? Get a gigantic hairdryer or something and blow it out? I'm not uh, sure that would uh, work in that scenario, but I, I get what you're saying there about those concerns. And I've certainly heard the, the issues of traffic, of fire uh, brought up before. I'm curious, though, because I was under the understanding that while you were on the Bowen Island Council, did you not at some point in the earlier days of this support this park? Yeah. In the in the earlier days, and this is this is a conversation half reported. Um, it's like sort of the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Well, you don't have the whole truth, but it's partly truthful. Absolutely, at the time there was a very open conversation, which we thought was a two-way conversation, which I am now far from sure uh, about the. There is a value people people value this part. This is a very special part of the island. And I could understand why people, ourselves included, were excited to have this preserved for posterity as as a place of recreation uh, for 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 the island. I, definitely, that was part of it. And and years ago, the in our OCP uh, sort of walk on camping was was part of it. It was, but it was never contemplated at the time to be uh, for 100 campsites. So the whole thing has grown out of proportion. And I'm not convinced, having spoken only last week to the seller, that originally um, camping was actually part of the deal. And I am confused as just to how important it is or it isn't to Metro, because if it is important, then I'm sorry, there's, 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 that's another discussion. Um, so, Jill, uh, confusion reigns here while we try to sort out just how important is camping because 
Here we've got 1,300 people who've signed a petition, which basically says to Metro, go fold your tent. Hmm. But but just to be clear, I thought that you had voted in in favour of the resolution, in favour of this project with with the 100 campsites. Well, that part of the discussion is absolutely true. At that time... That time, that was part of an ongoing discussion, and that's the one, of course, everybody likes to wave up at us. Mm, okay. It's not, not discussed. What is not discussed is all the concerns and all the objections and all the things that Metro would have to do to actually get permission for this, including probably a new entrance to the park, including completing the across. Uh, Bowen um, cycle path, which would have to be done, which adjoins the roadway because it's simply not safe to bring a whole ton extra uh, cyclists along there. So it was part of a much bigger conversation. But to that extent, you're absolutely right. It, it was it was deemed to be part of the conversation. Right. So where do you see this? And I get you're saying that you're hoping to meet with the legal advisors. We have this opposition. Do you think if the camping was taken out of this plan, would it get more support? Or or like you say, there are so many issues with infrastructure. And and, uh, I'm familiar with the island. I'm sure a lot of listeners are. It is that two lane road. You're going through residential neighborhoods to get to that part if it wasn't changed. I know they've talked about, oh, everybody would be on a shuttle bus. That seems like a bit of a pipe dream. Uh, So where does it go from here? Yeah, thank. And by the way, I'm glad you that you're familiar with the with the island because that makes this conversation a little easier. In as much as your question is, if uh, camping was, if you like, an exclusion excluded uh, activity, that would help enormously uh, the conversation. That would take a lot of heat off things because. People are not necessarily so opposed to the provincial park in itself, certainly not opposed to the preservation of this wonderful piece of land. Turn the subject to camping and and you're going to get a totally different approach from people who live here. And as I I said, I I mean, that is a big no. And if it could, uh, if it was removed, that would be super helpful. That would be a very excellent diplomatic start to future negotiations. All right. Well, Michael, I, uh, hopefully uh, we will talk to you again and uh, have updates on this as we know more about things moving forward. We'll have to leave it there for today, though. I appreciate so much you taking the time today. Thank you. Delighted, Jill. Thank you very much indeed. Bye-bye now. Well, many people went to beaches in and around Metro Vancouver last week, this weekend. But a note also went out on social media. And this was a warning that it was swimming at your own risk if you were going to some of the beaches in Vancouver specifically. This from the Vancouver Board of Parks and Recreation saying, Hey, swimmers, if you plan to hit the water today, due to lifeguard shortage, there are limited drop-in spots at New Brighton and Second Beach pools. Also, there will be no lifeguards on duty at Sunset Beach, Second Beach and Spanish Banks West. Swimming's at your own risk. Well, that got a lot of people talking. There was certainly a lot of feedback on that. And joining the show now to talk a bit more is Michael Weeb, who is a former city councillor and former park board commissioner, also a former lifeguard. Michael, thank you so much for taking some time. 
Thanks for having me today. Uh, when you saw that, uh, the uh, swim at your own risk, that there would be no lifeguards at those beaches, so what went through your mind? Uh, it's been concerning. It's been concerning for a few years. I mean, when I was lifeguarding, we started to have to check mark everything we did to justify the reason we were there. And so that was a great time for me to understand how valuable we were. And so I fought that when I became a city council or park board and then chair of the park board to ensure we kept lifeguards at our beaches because they play such a role. So it's been a constant battle. And so recognizing I'm not there anymore to be that kind of champion um, from elected position. I'm not surprised recognizing where we are budget-wise and the concerns for staffing because it does take a lot more effort to get lifeguards these days to be on our beaches. Right. Um, so, And I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I've often wondered about that and I've seen this argument as well in that it makes sense to have lifeguards at community pools and public pools. These are public facilities and people are going and uh, there, there is that level of safety. But uh, it was kind of the line in the park board tweet as well that said swimming is at your own risk. I mean, isn't swimming at a beach always at your own risk if you're somebody that's going out knowing full well this is a water sport, this is a very long beach in the city? Uh, isn't it always something that is an activity that people should no, it's at your own risk. Yes, except for the fact that at Sunset Beach, where I was housed for a few years, like you play a key role in ensuring that fires have been put out the night before, so kids aren't running on flames, you're making sure that needles are picked up, you're there to ensure people understand how the flow of boats are, what the currents are, the best places you're swimming. So you can prevent a lot of risks. And you can also be there for the community to resolve small conflicts so that police don't have to be called because it starts to get larger and larger and so they play a key role in community safety and i think that's something we continue to put so much pressure on to the police when there are roles like lifeguards that can help deal with the small conflicts between beachgoers and between bicyclists and so i think it's a role that as we continue to underfund we're having to find more serious um, forms of enforcement, and I think that's a concern for me, is that there's a huge way of having preventative work with lifeguards, and the problem is, for 50 years, we never had a drowning, and now that we've cut back, we've had our first drowning at one of our beaches, and I think that's a concern, is that we were so good at preventing that it's tough to fund preventative work, and I think that's something we need to change. We need to do more preventative healthcare and well-being work and fund it, and I think that we need to make sure that our lifeguards are currently funded. How much, though, when you talk about the, the roles and the things that you did at Sunset Beach as a lifeguard then, has it shifted away from from being focused solely or, or focused more on water safety and on preventing drowning and for keeping people safe? Then has it kind of shifted to a role of somebody who's, who's keeping the peace and keeping hazards away from people maybe on the land? Um, I think in speaking to people that have been at that beach for 50 years, because one of the amazing things about our lifeguards here in Vancouver, there's so many people that have done it for so long. And so they tell the stories that this has always been a role. It's always been a role to make sure that they tell Park Board to move sand where it needs to go, because sometimes with the currents, we'll lose sand, we'll create a pocket that could be dangerous for young swimmers. And so your role is to understand the beach and see where the dangers are and deal with those dangers in an early way. So move away stuff that might be dangerous or a log that could be something that could create an issue for a boater hitting. And so play a very preventative role. So that's always been a big part of our life ever since the beginning, right. kind of since the Joe Fortes days. Do, do you think that um, 
is it is it the same need then if you're talking about say a sunset beach or an english bay a more downtown beach as opposed to the huge expanse that goes once you're kind of past jericho and all of the spanish banks area because that seems like like as well it would be very difficult for a lifeguard to be able to have eyes on everybody on that beach so are there different kind of needs depending on the beach Yes, uh, Jericho or Spanish West, where they've taken off the guard. Like Fat Beach, you're dealing with mostly separated shoulders, injuries from skimboarding. So it's kind of letting people know where these borders where they should be, shouldn't be. You're also bringing in the hovercraft when there's serious issues. You're the one that clears the beach when the hovercraft comes in. You're the one that's making sure that the dogs aren't creating issues or the type borders that come through because that's an area where you'll see someone that's just new to type boarding right through an area and could cause harm, but you have ways to prevent that from happening. So, yeah, each beach is very different. Um, you play a very different role, but you play a similar role. You're part of the community, and that's why we've community-funded this, because our beaches don't make a significant amount of money, and this is something we've always seen as a value that uh, the city's been willing to pay. And look at what our priorities are. It's been continuously underfunded and it's something that's easy to cut because it's something that the beaches and pools are harder to cut but the extension in those beaches not everyone sees the value of a lifeguard there or knows what they do and so it's an easier cut to make right and and do you think it is that it has been cut or it is difficult to get people to train and to become lifeguards it's a bit of both so it's been a bit obviously the financial pressures have been put through covid and the amount of people coming to our beaches like the numbers coming to our parks are significant so park board's done an amazing job with very little extra funding and significant more people recognizing the importance of our beaches and parks with covid second is staffing and so you're seeing other municipalities pay for schooling so people can get their mls and they can get their lifeguard training you're seeing different groups like really do hardcore recruitment and different lifeguard school so Vancouver, when I went through, we had a lifeguard school. And so you became this kind of way to learn, gravitated more and more people to this program, became part of the community. Um, and then when we got rid of the lifeguard school, that really started to see a decline in the amount of people going through the program. And so I've been advocating to have our lifeguard school brought back and having a proper training and recognizing we want guards in lifeguard competitions. We want to make a culture of lifeguarding as a good employment, and it is. It's a great way for people to go through university, and most people there become paramedics, they become nurses, they become doctors. And so I think it is a great job that we should continue to promote to the next generation. And, Michael, I'm just curious, when you said, too, that uh, part of your, it was to documenting everything to, to show what the role was and, and how busy lifeguards are, what percentage would you say was actually spent in the water saving people or as opposed to the other things that you mentioned that, that became part of that job? Uh, I would say, like, vast majorities on land. However, like, I had the misfortune, I would guess, but, like, we had... Serious rescues off Jericho I did. We found dead body off Jericho Beach. I had spinal off third. I mean, I had some real serious first aids as well, water-related. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, some lifeguards will go through their whole time with not, but you're pulling kids more than you think, um, mostly at the pools. Like, it's pretty amazing. My first shift at Mount Pleasant Pool, which is obviously no longer there, but, yeah, the other lifeguard jumped in, and it was, like, kind of eye-opening to think that it happens as much as it does 
Um, but yeah, there is a lot of water related, mostly in the larger pools where an older brother is following a younger brother and it happens. And so, yeah, it's good for our lifeguards to be there because it's hard when you have a family with a lot of kids and everything's going on. And so it's good to have an extra set of eyes that can be there for you. Right. And I think, and, and again, uh, such a difference between somebody stationed at a pool uh, as opposed to maybe one of the, the beaches off the city. Uh, just one other, other question about that. When you mentioned some of the more serious cases, would that be a scenario, though, if somebody's on an unguarded beach, how much, or, or, or if there is a lifeguard there, how much, what role does the lifeguard play? Because I, I'm, I'm gathering that 911 would also be called and that, that paramedics or an ambulance would be called as well. Yeah, but I mean, the serious one I had at Jericho, someone went in, obviously intoxicated, wearing jeans, so I was able to spot them. I radioed, and by the time I got to the person, they were already six inches under the water. The other lifeguard was got to me within kind of a few seconds of me pulling the person in. And so, because when someone is drowning, it's actually really scary in the sense that they are trying to pull you down. And so to have backup immediately is really important. So if that's a 911 call, it's a very different health emergency than when you have a lifeguard that's able to spot it and you have backup as quickly as you do. And then you've got lifeguards from other beaches coming to support you. We used to have a lifeguard boat as well called Rescue One um, that we no longer have. And that was really critical because you could then have a boat come and back you up as well when you had to do a water issue. All right. Well, I'm uh, sure we will be talking more about this as we get more into the summer weather. Michael Weeb, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time today.